This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Julian Morrow. Welcome to The Roundtable. On the roundtable today, we're talking about adoption in Australia, past traumas and present policies. The history of some Australian adoption practices has, of course, led to two national apologies to the Stolen Generation and in 2013, when the Gillard government uh, formally apologised to the mothers and children of forced adoptions. And, of course, there are many Australians living today with the human cost of past policies and abuses in the adoption space. Today there are an estimated 45,000 children living in out-of-home care in Australia, but there's much less adoption than there used to be. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare said that in 2020-21 there were just 264 adoptions finalised in the country. 222 of them were domestic adoptions of, of kids born or permanently living in Australia. That is less than half the number of adoptions back in 2002. New South Wales and the ACT are quite unique in requiring domestic adoptions to be fully open, legislating for and implementing face-to-face post-adoption contact between adoptees and birth parents as a prerequisite for an adoption order. So part of our discussion today, we're going to have an open discussion about the new policy of open adoption. Will it yield better outcomes? And for the roundtable today, I'm pleased to welcome, firstly, CEO of Barnardo's Australia, Deirdre Cheer. Welcome, Deirdre. Good morning. Great to have you, Deirdre. We're also joined by uh, Peter Kapamala Moore, who is the head of an organisation called Adoptee Rights Australia, a national advocacy association of adopted people. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. And we're also joined by Professor Amy Conley Wright, who's director of the Research Centre for Children and Families at the University of Sydney. Welcome, uh, Professor Amy Conley Wright. Thank you. Uh, And, of course, we very much value your input into uh, this discussion about adoption. You can text us on 0418 226 576 or use the text in button on the ABC Listen app. Uh, Amy Conley-Wright, I'll come to you first. I mentioned New South Wales and the ACT uh, require fully open adoptions. I wonder if you could sort of flesh out for us the the current state of adoption policy and practice in Australia and how it diverges from, uh, from previous practice. Yes. Uh, so, the, the, as we'll talk about today, um, there's been a bit of difficult history of adoption in Australia around mm. closed adoption. Uh, but those, uh, there's a process of changing that painful history uh, in terms of openness. And so, we're at been at a time when the institution of adoption is being reconsidered and redefined. Um, and we can recognize that adoption is a, a lifelong experience with deep implications for identity and the importance of openness. And so, as you noted, um, the present-day adoptions that are being organized from out-of-home care in the ACT in New South Wales are expected to be fully open, where children have uh, ongoing relationships with their families and also uh, communicative openness within their adoptive families, where they are told about the circumstances of their adoption uh, and the reasons why they came into care. And in policy terms, that, that, that's relatively novel even around the world today. Is that right, Amy? That's right. So Australia is uh, quite strong in the policy settings in terms of uh, supporting ongoing relationships with family members. So we see in other countries that are similar to Australia, there isn't the same kind of level of expectations of ongoing relationships and connections. So I think, again, this comes from this history of adoption in Australia and the strong recognition of the importance of children maintaining these relationships with their families and having that information to inform their identities. 
Thanks very much, Amy. Uh, Peter Kapamala-Moore, uh, that new approach of open adoption is uh, the very opposite of your personal experience, which has led you into advocacy as well. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, your story? Okay. Um, my story was I was a family genealogist and, uh, uh, and I uh, had 13,500 people in my family tree. I visited... You know, reunions interstate uh, with the adoptive parents. I'd had a headstone remanufactured for the Irish convict ancestor and I create a, created a reunion around that and the refurbishment of his grave. And I did a DNA test in 2016 and I um, didn't quite understand DNA, didn't quite understand the matches and I had a very close match and I thought that that person was adopted and I was trying to find out where they fitted in my family. Six months down the track, when I finally understood DNA, I realised that person was in fact my sister. And all those people in my family tree were not related to me. I did not belong in their tree. Mm. Um, yeah, I did not belong in their culture. Um, yeah, it was quite a shock. Um, but then I, the biggest shock was I found that I have two birth certificates. And all adoptees have two birth certificates. I've been adoptees have three or four, but we all have you know, at least two birth certificates. And the realisation that this false identity had been created for me and I relied on that for life, and, yeah, um, yeah, it just astounds me. It's just a human rights abuse. And, uh, yeah, it still happens today. It's still the foundation of adoption. And as far as open adoption goes, I was in open or openness adoption from the 90s, but I didn't know, you know, it's at 90s until, you know, 2017. That's uh, 27 years I was in open adoption. Mm, yeah. Mm. yeah, it's a big question over, over openness and open adoption. Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Peter, for talking about about that with us. Um, I'll come to Deirdre Cheer in, in just a second, but um, Amy Conley, it was interesting, Peter, mentioning the sort of, uh, you know, DNA online research. Uh, is that a big factor in or, or a big change in the way that these questions about how to deal with adoption are, um, uh, are encountered by people these days because there's so much more that individuals can do to try and track things down? Absolutely. Uh, that is a big change uh, and it really points to the need for post-adoption supports and for access for information for people when they do, if they do make a late discovery, such as Peter's describing. Um, so it, it is a, a real, you know, kind of game changer for people in terms of, as, uh, you know, Peter said, so there's a new level of openness, you know, whether people are learning things later in life and they need supports, you know, to make sense of it and, and to reconnect with family if they choose to do so. Mm. On the roundtable, we're discussing uh, the history and the present of adoption policy in Australia and its human impacts. And uh, I'll come to you now, Deirdre Cheer, because uh, Barnardo's has done a very large study into the the use of open adoption from, from care and, and Barnardo's practices over recent years. Just before uh, we do that, though, let's, let, let's hear uh, an, a bit of audio from someone who was in out-of-home care for several years before finding his adopted family. His name is Damien. The moving around a lot affected me because... I sort of felt like the only person I could trust was me because everybody around me lied to me constantly. It was all like you're always told 
this is the last time, or this is it, this is the, you know, this is the real one. With the exception of the ones where they tell you, this is a short-term thing while we find you somebody, which is a different story, it makes you very cynical and it makes you very uh, hard-hearted, I think, because you just don't trust people. Uh, Bananas has been part of a landmark research project into the outcomes of open adoption from out-of-home care. Deidre Cheer, could you tell us uh, about that research and what you see as sort of the key findings from it? Yes, certainly. Thank you, Julian. And look, before I do that, I, I just want to really acknowledge um, what Peter has said mm. because the pain of those years of... Um, closedness in general cannot be underestimated. And Bernardo's Australia, you know, has been delivering children's services in Australia for over 100 years and, as many people know, were, uh, well, still are in the UK. Um, and, and so we're very aware of children's rights, children's needs to know their identity and uh, the importance of listening to children. So, um, and, and secondly, just before I go to the research itself, I, I just want to capture some of those things that we heard from Damien. Mm. And just to highlight that what Damien was talking about was his experience in foster care. So that clip, uh, he was talking about the moves that people told him this would be the last time he moved. So he wasn't adopted at that point. Mm. He was in foster care and he was moving around, which is not uncommon for children in foster care. A very large number will move two, three, four times, never find find any permanence in their life or stability and this is where open adoption comes in. So in the contemporary environment and Bernardo's has been an adoption agency since the mid-80s, the research that we conducted with Oxford University and uh, led by Professor Harriet Ward looked at over 200 of those adoptions the open nature of the adoption was in the relationships created between the children, their own birth parents and their adoptive parents well before there was any adoption order. So the the, the real nub of this for children in out-of-home care is that they've brought into the care system as a result of abuse and neglect. There's a children's court involved. You know, no one no one takes children away lightly these days. Um, it's, it's a process that is quite complex and open to all, all the processes that are uh, available in the legal system. So Damien, as a child, was talking about his experience of moving, of people saying to him, no, this is the family, you're not going to move again, and then moving again because the difference between foster care and open adoption is legal permanence. Mm. Once a child is adopted, they are legally the child of that new family, which uh, Peter has referred to. Uh, And if you don't know that you're a member of a different family and you don't know that you've got, you know, different birth certificates, I absolutely couldn't agree with Peter Moore. This is very, very, very harmful for children because children need to know their identity. So coming to the research, um, the outcomes of open adoption from care 
as I said, led by Oxford University, 212 uh, Bernardo's children between mid-80s and 2010, 2012. Of course, many of those children were adults by the time they participated in the research. And the big, big ticket items in the findings is that open adoption did provide permanence for those children. None of them returned to the foster care system, which, you know, is, is, as we all know, notoriously unstable, has its place, but many, many children move around a lot, which by adolescence often leads them into other circumstances. Well over half of the uh, children adopted in the study were still living with their adoptive parents. So unlike children in foster care who leave the system at 18, um, these, these children and adults were still living with their adoptive parents. They weren't sort of out on the street. Um, the average age that they left home was um you know, much closer to uh, the norm for ordinary, everyday families uh, in their 20s. Um, the majority that had left did for the the usual reasons to study, to live independently, uh, to live with a partner. And compared to the general population, at least as many or many more were continuing to live with their parents into their 20s. Mm. And the big contributing factor there, of course, was the stability in their lives and the support uh, that they were getting. The, The other striking striking differences from foster care were that their educational outcomes were similar to the general population. So unlike um, adults who grow up in foster care, uh, where about 40, 42% uh, will have completed their schooling, over 60% uh, had completed year 12 or higher. They were much more likely to be working um, and they'd had contact all through their growing up. So their identity issues weren't closed or a secret and whilst contact uh, for those those young adults and those uh, children, of course, could be difficult over time because they had been brought into the care system as a result of very difficult yes. life experiences. Yes. They knew who they were. Mm. They absolutely knew who they were. Thanks very much, Deirdre, for that that overview. And thanks also to uh, our listeners who are, who are texting in. Obviously, these are very, uh, very personal and, and in many cases really traumatic issues and we really appreciate uh, people contributing to the discussion. One texter says, I'm a 54-year-old Victorian adoptee and former state ward. I would have preferred to grow up in an institution. Another text says, uh, good morning, I met my... Uh, beautiful sister Sue for the very first time at the age of 60. What a dreadful waste of what is now a loving and caring lifetime of sisterly love. So it's, it's great to hear that that's turned out um, better, at least in, in the later stages. Uh, I want to pick up a phrase now which really struck me from the Barnardo's uh, report, uh, which was that open, uh, or that, uh, that contact um, with, with birth parents introduced a painful transparency um, Peter Kapamala, I wonder if you could uh, talk to us a little bit about, um, I suppose, the different types of pain and, and, and wh- what you think of that idea of painful transparency perhaps being um, the, the best available option in what are always very fraught and complex circumstances. Um, 
Yeah, I, I wanted to. Yeah, I can. I will. We'll touch on that. Please, I wanted yeah, to yeah. refute some some of the uh, the the results of that study. There was only twenty adoptees interviewed, and of that, only three were interviewed without their adoptive parents. It's really not a groundbreaking study. Yeah, we we could spend all day going through that study and, and calling it to pieces. Um, in the study, it also says that uh, there is, however, evidence that children adopted from care show similar levels of emotional and behavioural difficulties to those experienced by children in foster care. So, similar outcomes. There was also five adoptees in that study who had died under the age of 35, one by suicide, one in a car accident. I'm not sure what happened to the other three. I'd be interested to know. But if you're going to extrapolate outcomes from a study of 210 or 212 adoptees, which many didn't respond, then that's 2.4% death rate under 35. You know, you've got to be careful how you extrapolate things from such a small study. But sure, yeah. yeah I'll, um, I'll come back. Moving to, come, to my... Yeah. Yeah, moving to those experiences, I experienced lots of loss um, when fighting my, my, my biological family and I've reunited with all of my eight siblings and my mother, who I speak to constantly. I've, she lives in the state. I've travelled in the state many times. In fact, my son and his fiance went and met her for the first time last week and uh, said they know where they where I get all my stories from as a storyteller, she's a storyteller. Um, yeah, I lost out of my Aboriginal culture. I lost out of my Italian culture. You know, I see where Bernardo's you know, acknowledged that you know, Aboriginal culture you know, is not consistent with adoption, but you know, that, that denies my Italian culture as well. Um, my father was Italian, my mother, Aboriginal. Um, yeah, um, reading up my my siblings, I just realised how much I'd lost mm. over the. You know, it just it, it's just not replaceable. And you know, my oldest brother died three and a half years after meeting him. I'd become very very close to him, but you know, yeah. at his funeral, listening to eulogies of what they did when they were teenagers, and you know, I sat there thinking, I wasn't there for those. Mm. You know. Mm. You can't replace those losses, and and a, you know, a phone call or a, a letter or a picture that doesn't do that. You know, there is there's there's no need to one to cancel that original birth certificate and create a you know, a fabricated birth certificate that says you're born to adoptive parents. That's just delusional. Um, mm. I, you know, that really cuts me deep, and yeah. You know, for, for adoptees to get their information today, New South Wales, up to two years to get their information. That could, that's, you know, could be not just life-changing, it, it could save their life. We, we know from overseas studies that up to four, four times the death rate by suicide of adoptees, higher rates of incarceration, higher rates of, of, of um, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, mm. uh, higher rates of homelessness. Yeah, that's also in their study that yes. there's um, yeah. a number of those adoptees left home before 18. A number of them did have drug and alcohol abuse. A number of them couldn't be found. Yeah, 
the, 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 the biological parents couldn't be found. They were in open adoption, but they couldn't find the mothers. Yeah. yeah. Or they, they could, didn't have the resources of the mothers. $100 million Bernardo's got last year, and they didn't have the resources for this study to, to find the mothers. Yeah. There's a lot of questions around that. Thanks, uh, Peter Kapamala Moore. And I will come back to, to you uh, soon, Deidre Chair, but I wanted to bring Professor Amy Conley Wright back into the conversation. Uh, feel free to comment on anything you, you've heard in the conversation so far, but I wanted to also come back to that, that, that concept of painful transparency and, you know, what, what your assessment is of the, the, um, uh, the Bernardo's report. Uh Look, uh, I just also want to acknowledge the, the pain and trauma that we're hearing and, um, again, the need for post-adoption supports that includes um, accessing information, search, contact, you know, ongoing referrals to appropriate professionals who've been trained to work with adoptees. Um, and there's a significant need for legislation in this space to recognize that individuals and families who've been involved in adoption can require varying forms of support at different times in their lifespan. Um, and so... You know, that's that's an area where even the government can um, have more action. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the transparency, I think, you know, the intention now with open adoption, you know, particularly practiced through out-of-home care, is that, you know, children have, you know, a, a clear sense of, of their families with all of that that means, you know, it's an opportunity to have relationships, but also kind of a clear sense of, you know, why they came into care so that they're, you know, understanding that and that can inform their identities. Thanks very much, uh, Amy. And j just briefly on the, the birth certificate issue, which Peter's mentioned a couple of times, what, what are the, the current practices uh, with that and, and do you think things need to change? Well, in New South Wales, there has been there have been changes and in some other states and territories as well. And in New South Wales, there's a, a new p uh, format for the birth certificate where the identity at birth and the identity at adoption is provided. Um, so again, so this is a, a new legal document that is replaces, you can replace or it can be uh, alongside the birth certificate at birth. Thank you. Um, I'll come back to you, Deidre Chair, CEO of Bernardo's Australia. Um, you heard what, what uh, Peter Kapamala-Moore had to say, some criticisms of, of the report and obviously, you know, just very, very intense um, feelings about the, what, what Peter's experienced. What, what's your response? Yeah, so uh, again, um, and, and just acknowledging what uh, Amy's just said, that the current practices and the law in New South Wales is for integrated birth certificates, that piece of legislation passed um, uh, in the last year or two. So, you know, the, the pain never goes away and we see children's pain day in and day out in, in all the thousands of children we see each year the majority of whom are not adopted and the majority of whom are not in foster care. So, you know, we we, uh, we see those children through our children's family centres. Uh, all of those family centres are in areas where um, there is great vulnerability, often great uh, social issues and lack of government support um, to the extent that those children have the same opportunities as other children. So, you know, adoption is is absolutely not the solution um, and an automatic solution for every child. However, we do have a Care Act and a care and protection system which brings children 
into foster care and into other forms of care. And those children do go through a legal process and for some of them the court says it's not safe at home. And so they enter the care system and they then are subject to whatever the care system provides. And some of them find safety and others don't. You know, we've we've had quite a lot of um, public reports and, um, you know, we had some media in the last few months about, you know, really the challenges of that foster mm. care and care system in general. So, you know, we, Bernardo's position is that we, we really should never be bringing children into a system that hurts them more. You know, mm. we, we don't want to do that. Coming to the um, couple of the comments that, that uh, Peter made about identity and contact, Absolutely, adoption is is not for Aboriginal children. You know, we we all know that over and over again. We do have children who come through our open adoption programs who are from other cultures, Italian being one of them. Peter's mentioned Italian, and so we um, in in that practice uh, of not just openness but creating cultural identity and matching. So you know, we will go to all sorts of links to find the cultural match and the, um, the the parents have met each other long before an adoption order is made. So, you know, most, most parts of the world have, uh, as Peter's rightly mentioned, letterbox or um, non-face-to-face contact. Bernardo's adoptions are all face-to-face contact and and they're not with social workers, you know, in, in rooms kind of keeping everyone apart. Those relationships are created very, very early on so that by the time an adoption order is made by the Supreme Court um, and sometimes both the children's parents and their adoptive parents are there yep. in the room, you know, with the judge on the bench. Um, the relationships are forged. They're active. They're open. Many children in care have got very, very extended families and they might be having contact with two yes. or three sets of grandparents, five sets of cousins, other Thanks, brothers and sisters. Yeah, really appreciate that, that Deidre. I just would, time's getting away from us. I just wanted to briefly ask because obviously the comparison is with foster parenting. And um, Peter Kapamala Moore, you're a foster parent yourself now. Uh, could you just speak briefly about how you approach uh, the relationship you have with children that you care for? Okay, I, I've been a foster carer, and my wife have been foster carers for you know, well over a decade, probably close to 15 years or so. We've had many kids through our care. We started as, um, you know, sh- short-term, you know, crisis care, that sort of stuff. Um, we have one adult who still lives with us who has been with us since uh, age eight and um, has been part of our family but also part of their own family. Uh, our house has been an open house to their to our siblings um, who have arrived at unannounced to us and to their older siblings who have also been through the foster care system arrived at our house and said we're, we're going to take her out for the day and then we get a phone call later on the day oh, we're going to keep her overnight went, yep no problem they come to our christmas parties they bring their partners she's, she's very much part of, of two families but she didn't need to be adopted 
There is no one that needs to be adopted. They can be cared for either under long-term foster care or guardianship. You know, there is always an alternative care path that doesn't involve adoption. You know, that adoption is an archaic act that destroys your identity from day one. The whole foundation of the Adoption Act is to remove your identity, your, your name, and place you on a new birth certificate and yeah. create this new false document. And integrated birth certificates are not the answer. We did not see that integrated birth... I don't want an integrated birth certificate. Thanks, Peter. I don't want and my adoptive parents on my... Yes. ..on my... And unfortunately, Peter, we're going to have to leave it there because it's coming up to news time. Thank you very much for participating in the roundtable to all our guests today. That's Peter Kapamala-Moore. Thanks also to you, Deidre Cheer, CEO of Barnardo's Australia. Thanks, Julian. And and thanks also Professor Amy Connolly-Wright. Thank you. And uh, Amy is Director of the Research Centre for Children and Families at the University of Sydney. And that's all we have time for. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Julian Morris. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.